0: The word comes to us today from 1st Samuel chapter 7. 1st Samuel 7 and I will be reading verses 3 through 17, the end of the chapter. 1st Samuel 7, 3 through 17. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bales and the ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Beth-kar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued. And they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between the Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel to Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word today, I pray that you would incline our hearts towards you by the work of your Holy Spirit to receive it, that as we see your people here in a time of repentance and in a time of renewal, a time of reformation and inclining their hearts again towards you, that we, as we gather in your name, would incline our hearts towards you and that we would receive your word and faithfully put it into practice in our lives. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are a part here of a Presbyterian church. A Presbyterian church, part of the broader Reformed tradition. Now, a question I want to put before you is, why are you Reformed? What is Reformation and why is this church and why are you a part of a church that so identifies itself with Reformation? Maybe you've never asked yourself this question before. Maybe you are Reformed because you always have been. You may have been born in this church or a church like it, grown up in the Reformed tradition and that's just always the way it's been and if so, that's that's fine. But why be reformed? Why reformation? There's something much more important to, or more important than a label that we apply to our theological tradition that we might put on our buildings or anything of that sort. Reformation is about return to God's word and God's will for the life of his church and his people. Reformation lets God's word stand in authority over who we are and what we do. Now it is important to, to state this and to remember this in our day, as there is a present trend, I've mentioned it before, but it's known as deconstruction. It's, it's popular particularly among younger generations where they start deconstructing, they start taking their faith apart, putting themselves in judgment over their faith, what they've heard, what they've taught, choosing what to accept, choosing what to reject, and this is usually a road to apostasy and to ruin. Now many proponents of deconstruction will say that, well, we're just doing what the Reformers did. This is just a new Reformation. But they are wrong. They are trying to deceive, or they are deceived. Reformation lets God... And his words stand in authority over us and we can form ourselves anew and afresh to God's will. Deconstruction is where we stand in authority over God or try to. We can't, but we will certainly try and in such a way become our own God. Reformation as a return to God's word is seen in our Reformation history. On October 31st of 1517, the Augustinian monk Martin Luther, who wrote the first song we sang today, nailed a document to the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. It was an invitation to debate. It was a list of 95 theses, 95 propositions about the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly their practice of selling indulgences trying to sell forgiveness, trying to sell spiritual blessings for money. Luther objected to this practice because he did not see such things in Scripture, and so he wanted to take his stand. But Luther's action helped to fuel a broader recovery of the gospel, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, led to further reforms of worship. The medieval Roman church had embraced many superstitions, many unbiblical practices. They added five more sacraments to baptism in the Lord's Supper, and then they even corrupted those original two. With the embrace of transubstantiation, that bread and wine physically, substantially become Christ's body and blood. Their doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that Baptism actually washed away sins and infused grace to anyone who received it. They would only offer the Mass in Latin, even though very few of the people at the time knew Latin. They worshipped images, breaking the Second Commandments. They worshipped Mary and the Saints, breaking the First Commandments. So the Reformation was very concerned with the recovery of the true worship of the true God in obedience to what was set forth in his word. But the Protestant Reformation was not the only time in history where God's people had needed or undertaken such renewal. We have been studying this book of 1 Samuel. This is actually, Lord willing, the last week will be in 1 Samuel for a while. I plan next week to actually return to Genesis, the series that I started back in the fall. But for today, we are again in 1 Samuel A book that has been set against a backdrop of serious corruption and idolatry and apostasy by God's people. The only real glimmers of hope have centered around a single young man, Samuel, who has emerged as a prophet of the Lord in this dark time. Now we have been without Samuel in the most recent chapters, as we have seen this narrative of the Ark of God captured by the Philistines and how God even through that has done a mighty work among the Philistines, though also judged them for their blasphemy and idolatry against him. But here in the remainder of chapter 7, Samuel returns, and he returns with this clear purpose of bringing reformation to God's people, of bringing them back to the right worship of God and reliance upon him. A motto of the Protestant Reformation was in Latin, I'm not very good at Latin, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but post tenebros lux, or after darkness light. Well, today in First Samuel, we see for Israel, after a prolonged period of darkness, returning, at least for a moment, to light. This will be a good ending point for now. As I said, Lord willing, next week we'll be back in Genesis. But I think that this leaves us in the right sort of place after we've looked at all of this darkness and sin and rebellion to leave at the solution, to leave at where such a people ought to go. So we will look today at this reformation under Samuel in chapter 7 in four points. First, we see a repentance from idolatry in verses 3 and 4. Second, we see a return to the worship of God in verses 5 through 11. And then third, we see a remembrance of God's goodness in verse 12. And then finally, the restoration of Israel in verses 13 through 17. So again, we have repentance from idolatry, return to the worship of God, remembrance of God's goodness, and then restoration of Israel. So first we will look at Israel's repentance from idolatry in verses 3 and 4. It is here we are reintroduced to Samuel. The last time we had seen him before this was back in chapter 3. He was just a boy. He then receded into the background as the judgment of the priesthood and the Philistine conflict took center stage for a time. Samuel now reappears after a bittersweet account that we looked at last time, where God's ark returned to Israel, returned to his people, only to enter an all-new 20-year exile among the outsider Gibeonites at Kiriath-Jerim. It seems that perhaps this is what finally brought Israel to a point of change. We read at the end of verse 2 last time that they lamented after the Lord. They saw the Lord's ark come back only to find themselves rebellious and unworthy, and many of their own struck down for disobedience. And so Samuel, now himself a grown man and a prophet, returns and speaks. Now he prefaces his teaching with, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts. The people were gathered because of a recognition by the people that they needed to return to the Lord. They had witnessed this time of Ichabod. The glory of the Lord had departed. And to this point, it had not in any meaningful sense come back. People lamented after the Lord because he had not been with them and he had not been for them. They had been humbled, and now finally they were ready to return. But it is not merely enough for them to want God to return. God will only be worshipped by those who will worship him with their whole hearts. There is no room for half-hearted devotion, divided between God and other things. We cannot serve God alongside false gods. We cannot serve God alongside idols. We can't serve God alongside money or Worship of ourselves or while persisting in our unrepentant sins. Not only must God be worshipped with the whole heart, he must be worshipped purely according to his word. This necessitates the putting away of false worship, which we have seen as dominant throughout this book so far. We have seen false worship everywhere we have turned. Even when the tabernacle in the scenes we saw earlier at Shiloh Even there, the worship was false and polluted. The priests were corrupt and immoral and abusive. They stole from the sacrifices, both God's portion and the portion of the people. They committed gross sexual immorality, even at the place of worship. Worst of all, the priests did not know God. And for this blasphemy, God poured out his judgment. In order for true worship of God to return, false worship must leave. This is Samuel's next command in the end of verse 3 and continuing into verse 4. God had removed his ark and his worship such that it would not be profaned anymore. But false worship remains in Israel in the form of idolatry, this worship of the Baals and of Ashtaroths. Now these were false gods of the surrounding nations. These were gods that were typically associated with, among other things, fertility. For it seems that most, if not all, worship of false gods caters to some sort of human desire. So worship of Baals and worship of the Ashtoreths brought various kinds of sexual immorality. They would commit these acts as a part of their worship. So not only is this a command to turn away from idolatry, but to turn away from all these other sins that accompany it. Now not only are these gods to be put away, A negative command, but there is also a positive command. They are to prepare their hearts for the Lord and to serve Him only. John Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We are all created with a sense of the divine. We are all created to worship God. But we are also fallen and sinful. This is why almost every people group in the history of the world has some kind of religion. And yet every religion but one is false and idolatrous. Just because fallen and sinful man does not worship God rightly does not mean that he stops worshiping. Many worship overtly false gods. They join false religions or others worship themselves, their freedom, their possessions, their activities their autonomy, even the good things that we have, our relationships, our occupations, other people in our lives, these good gifts that God gives us, they can become idols if we put misplaced devotion towards them. Now these Israelites, despite the departure of the true God from their midst, they had not stopped worshiping. They embraced the gods of the nations. They crafted idols and worshipped them instead. But Samuel tells them that this time is at an end. It has to be. With this comes a promise that if they turn from their sin, God will deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. Now here one might ask, is it right to place their victory over the Philistines as contingent on their repentance? Could this maybe get us something of a prosperity teaching where We are commanded to serve God, and then if we do, all of our problems will go away. No, that's not what's going on here. We do have to remember how we got where we did with this Philistine situation and this conflict. Israel is under the hand of the Philistines precisely because they have turned away from God and served idols. They know this. They remember the disaster of chapter 4 where they made the superstitious power play with the ark that resulted in their severe defeat and the ark's capture. But God, in His grace and favor to His people, through Samuel, gives them a promise. If they will repent of this sin that has brought the calamity, He will deliver them from it. He will deliver them from the Philistines. He will remove this chastening and discipline from them. This is a unique case given by God's special revelation. This does not mean that we can or should presume that repentance from sin on our part will automatically grant us deliverance from temporal problems. But for Israel, in this case, God does promise just that. And we read in verse 4 that the people listen. They obey. They put their idols away and serve the Lord alone. Now, sadly, this is not a permanent resolution. Idolatry will return over and over again to the people of Israel. It will plague them all the way until the time they go into exile, when God casts them out of the land for their rejection of Him. If they want to worship the gods of the nations, among the nations they will go. Those who will not have God as their God will not live as His people with His blessings and benefits. Now we know that the worship of Baal will feature prominently later in the ministry of Elijah and other prophets of Israel. But for now, Baal and the Ashtaroth are put away. Israel, for a time, will refrain from this false worship and reform around God's word and God's will. And so we have seen Israel's repentance in their putting away of idols. But this is not all that this repentance entails. Yes, repentance does require the putting away of sin. There is no repentance where one does not strive to stop sinning. But there is not only a putting off of sin, there is also an obedience characteristic of repentance. We turn to this now in our second point, a return to true worship in verses 5 through 11. So Samuel calls the people to an assembly at Mizpah where he says he will pray for them. We see that this assembly involves the pouring out of water and the fasting from food. As part of their contrition, as a part of their being sorry for their sin, the people recognize that their need for reconciliation to God is even greater than their material need for food and water. What good is physical life? What good is food and drink if separated from God's presence and salvation? They take on an outward state to reflect their inward state, their spiritual state of poverty and starvation and need before God. They have turned away from that sin and now confess that they have sinned against the Lord. Now we also see in the end of verse 6, Samuel's ascent to the judgeship. You might recall from the death of Eli in chapter 4 that Eli had been the judge of Israel for 40 years. The judge was something of a hybrid between a judicial figure and a prince or a ruler. Now we already know that Samuel has been doing some of the work of a prophet and a priest, but now he takes on something at least resembling externally the role of a king. He's not a king, not by name, There won't be a king until later, but something functionally similar, a a governmental leader and ruler. Now, anytime we see these combination of three things, a prophet, a priest, and a king, that should point us somewhere. That points us to Christ and his threefold office. And so Samuel is here, as he often is, something of a type of Christ. He was established as a prophet in chapter 3. Here he's doing the duty of something like a king, like a ruler, governing the people judicially. Then we'll see something of his priestly intercession here in a moment. But first, in verse 7, we have a quick look at the Philistine situation. The Philistines get word that this assembly at Mizpah is going on, and they smell an opportunity. They decide to send their troops there to, in their eyes, once again lay Israel low continue to defeat them, continue to conquer them, just as they did in chapter 4. If everybody's all together in one place and they're distracted with their worship, that's a good opportunity for us, they think. And the people of Israel find out about this and they are afraid. So how do they respond? This is where we see Samuel doing something of a priestly intercession. The people ask him to pray for them. But not just to pray once and be done. They say, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. They realize this is a desperate situation that requires desperate prayer. Might perhaps bring back to mind Hannah's desperate prayer all the way back in chapter one, when she was barren and tormented by a rival wife. And rather than taking to despair and sin and a returning of evil for evil, She turns to the Lord in a deep, heartfelt prayer that God might do something about her situation. So here now, the son, who was the answer to that very prayer, is called upon to pray similarly. But first, in verse 9, Samuel offers a sacrifice for the people. Again, a part of priestly intercession. Now you remember that the Philistines in chapter 6 attempted to bring a guilt offering to God to turn his plagues away, but their sacrifice, their offering, was unacceptable. They made idols. They made gold images of unclean things. They made tumors and mice and sent them with the ark. But Samuel here offers an acceptable sacrifice. A young lamb, at least eight days old, as you might see in Leviticus 22, A lamb to take away their sins. Again, this should point you somewhere to something ahead, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice and substitute, who bears our sins and reconciles us to God. All this talk we've had in the previous weeks and previous chapters among both the Israelites and the Philistines about the need for reconciliation to God Here we see by types and shadows where reconciliation to God truly comes from. It is only in the Lamb of God. And after this sacrifice, Samuel does pray this desperate prayer. As we see at the end of verse 9, the Lord answers him. Where sacrifices and prayers had for so long been offered in Israel in vain, stained by corruption and sin and idolatry, on that day... The Lord heard. And in verse 10, the Lord responds. He responds with a pure and righteous vengeance against the Philistines, those who had oppressed and violated and done such great harm to his people. God had seen and heard and accepted Israel's repentance, and he himself fought against the Philistines on their behalf. We see the Lord confuses the Philistines. In war, communication and organization are critical. You can have the most troops, and you can have the best weapons, and yet if you cannot get them where they need to be to do what they are supposed to do, you will be defeated. God disrupts the Philistines. He throws them into chaos. We read that God thundered against the Philistines. Now remember, up to this point, one of the false gods Israel had been worshiping was Baal. Baal was known as a fertility god, as I mentioned earlier, but he's also known as a storm god. But the problem with Baal is that whatever power is ascribed to him, whatever is claimed about him, he is a false god. He cannot thunder against anyone. It is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who truly sends thunder and who thunders against his enemies. And the Philistines fall into chaos. They cannot attack. They are confused. They probably are even turning on each other. And all that is left for Israel to do is to pursue them and pick off the retreating survivors. God has accepted Israel's repentance and their return to worship, and he has sent deliverance. But now a question remains. What will come of this repentance and return now that the battle against the Philistines is won? We turn to our third point today, remembrance in verse 12. So that they might not forget what has happened this day, their repentance and their victory over the Philistines, Samuel, in the presence of Israel, raises a stone of remembrance, a memorial named Ebenezer. This is why when we sing the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's where that verse comes from. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. It's to remember and praise God for what he has done for us in the past. How often when we come to God in perhaps a desperate situation and we repent and we pray and God hears us and helps us and delivers us, Do we not even bother to return to God to thank him? Samuel wants it to be known. He wants it to be clear that it is God who has helped them and God alone who receives the glory, and he does not want the people to forget. This, too, was one of the founding principles of the Reformation. Another Latin term, soli Deo gloria, glory be to God alone. Or to put it in the words of Samuel, thus far the Lord has helped us. No one else, not Baal, not Ashtaroth, not our own might and power. The Lord has helped us. And so that they might remember, so that this might be memorialized, he sets up the stone. Stones last a long time. They typically outlast the wives of the people who set them up. You head west of here to the hills, you'll see, for instance, Mount Rushmore. It's a national symbol. It's been there a long time. Barring some disaster, it won't be going anywhere for a while. It's carved into stone. A reminder of history, a reminder of leaders of our land. So Samuel wants there to be something as a permanent reminder to the people of God's mercy and deliverance after they have so often forgotten even after that generation is dead and gone. And we too, as God's people, need to be reminded. Just as the Israelites would not have overcome the Philistines apart from God's help, we would not be where we are, we would not be what we are, we would not have done what we have done had God not helped us thus far. God upholds our very lives. Our days are in His hands. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And yet we are prone to forget. We are inclined to take His glory for ourselves or to give it to others. The victory over the Philistines, just as any victory we gain in our lives, is not of our own hands. Whatever good we have is by grace. We deserve only our sin, death and hell. Yet God in so many times and in so many ways pours out his mercy and favor and help upon us. And what do we do? Often we forget. We forget God, we forget his mighty works, we forget what he has done for us in saving us from our sin and misery. We need Ebenezer's, we need stones of remembrance. Not so much literal physical stones, but we need reminders. We need to reflect on what God has done and give thanks for what He has done. This is part of why we're here. Week in and week out, we come here to praise God, to worship Him, and to remember His great deeds. We remember through the word we hear, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray. The sacraments, all of these remind us of God and all his wonderful works for us. We do this, we come together like this week in and week out because we are inclined to forget because as the hymn continues, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We need reminders. We need to hear the word. We need to hear it early and often. We need prayer, we need to worship, we need these as our stones of remembrance. So we have seen the people of God in our text repent of their idolatry, return to true worship, and establish a stone of remembrance. Then we come to our fourth and final point, restoration in verses 13 through 17. We see that this great deliverance from God will have some wide-reaching effects, and they will last at least for some time. Not only are the Philistines defeated that day, but Israel will have victory over the Philistines during all of Samuel's judgeship. The lands and the cities that the Philistines had taken would be returned. Not only that, but they would have peace with the Amorites, another one of their enemies. The Amorites were a people that historically, they were something of a thorn in the side of Israel. They were another group of Canaanites, one that continued to fight, continued to make war with Israel. They were not wiped out in the conquest of Joshua. But in the days of Samuel, even they would not be a problem for Israel. We see in the last few verses of this chapter a summary of Samuel's days as judge. He'd spend the rest of his life in that role. He would travel in a circuit around Israel and carry out his judgment, settling disputes, dealing with concerns over enemies, all the while keeping his home in Ramah. We also read that he builds an altar to the Lord there in his hometown. He would continue to worship the Lord faithfully. He would not forget what God had done. Now, this is important because what we have in Samuel is the last good judge of Israel. Remember that in the book of Judges, there was these cycles. The people would rebel and fall into idolatry. God would raise up a judge who would bring deliverance, and then the people would repent and be restored for a time until falling again back into sin and idolatry. Sometimes the judges themselves would ultimately prove unrighteous. You could think of Gideon after his great military victory. He took on many wives, had many sons. It led to strife in the kingdom. It led to idolatry. Samson preferred the company of foreign women, led him astray into his eventual capture and death. But Samuel remains a righteous and faithful judge his whole life. He does not forget. Samuel was perhaps the greatest of the judges, But he is also the last judge, for after him comes the demand for a king. Still, for now, it is sufficient to say that after their repentance, God's people have been restored. They again possess their land and they worship their God. They have undergone a reformation, a putting away of false worship, and again believing and embracing God by grace through faith. This was the Reformation that Samuel led. It was the kind of Reformation that Luther and our Reformers made. And this is our call to Reformation even now. As I quoted earlier from Calvin, our hearts are idle factories. We are prone to wander. We are prone to forget God and His grace and His mercy and salvation. But the Gospel reminds us of Christ and who He is and what He has done. He is the Lamb of God on whom the sins of all His people were laid. He was slain as the once for all perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect prophet, priest, and king who teaches us of our salvation in the Gospel, who redeemed us by His sacrifice and continues to intercede for us and our king who rules over us by his word and spirit while subduing and conquering his and our enemies. He is the greater Samuel. He is the greatest of all. And his gospel received as a free gift by grace through faith is the only way to salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is in Christ alone. So what will you do with this Christ who was typified to Samuel and the people of Israel thousands of years ago, but now is plainly known through this gospel? Will you rebel and go your own way apart from Christ as Israel did in the earlier chapters? Will you forget about him? Will you walk out the door today with your heart far from him? Or will you come to Christ, worship Christ, raise a stone of remembrance for Christ and all the great things that he has done, and live a life of joyful thankfulness, loving God, serving God, and loving neighbor as he has called you to do? That is our call today. It is our call to reformation throughout all of our time in this world and throughout all the life and history of the church. Repent of your sins believe in the gospel, love and serve Christ, and may we all do so today and forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is by your word and only by your word that there is life, that there is hope, that there is instruction in what is true concerning you and how we are to worship you. I pray that we would be a people faithful to your word, that we would be constantly returning to your word, reforming our lives and ourselves and our church around your word in any way that we need to, that we would be faithful to what you have called us to do in this life. We pray that you would keep us and preserve us and remind us of you and your works throughout all of our lives as we look forward to the life to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamelopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.